If you want to know how to live longer and how to live better, you should be listening to Peter. His unique spectrum of experience, relentless obsession over details, and the ability to translate the cutting edge of science into something the rest of us can use is invaluable. That was from Tim Ferriss. What's up, ladies and gentlemen? I'm coming to you from inside a cabin 6,000 feet up on the big island of Hawaii. And Peter and I just recorded this podcast about an hour ago, and he is currently bow hunting uh, about a mile away from here with his buddy JR. And I decided to stay behind to upload the intro to this podcast. Uh, It was one of my favorites ever. I'm sure many of you are familiar with Peter's work. He is a medical doctor that focuses on the applied sciences of longevity. He is the host of The Drive, his episode um, with Sam Harris in the drive is, I think one of the best podcasts out there. I've listened to it like three times. And, uh, in this conversation, we didn't talk about longevity at all. I made a conscious effort to steer the conversation into topics that Peter doesn't normally get to talk about. Uh, and I hope that you all enjoy it immensely. Before we get this going, I want to let you know that this month's box of goodies includes a signed copy of Sex at Dawn by Dr. Chris Ryan, a can of mud water, and a jar of Santa Cruz Medicinals CBD coconut oil. Uh, The CBD coconut oil is something that I love to mix with the mud water. And uh, they also make pain cream. I gave some to my mom recently, and she said that it helped a lot. So you can go over to scmedicinals.com to check out all the good products that they make. And you can type in the code word KYLE10, and you'll get 10% off of all their products. And Mud Water is a chai mushroom blend that I use most mornings, and we've been using a bunch out here on the hunting trip. It has... Uh, cacao, reishi, lion's mane, turmeric. We've been making it into these uh, smoothies where so we put the, the cocoa oil in it and ice, extra cinnamon, little sea salt, and it's been getting our days going before we go out and, and hunt pretty much all day long. Suffice to say, it's been an awesome week, and I feel really lucky to be here. But um, here's a quick clip from the author of Sex at Dawn. Hey, everybody. This is Chris Ryan, co-author of Sex at Dawn. Hope you enjoy that signed copy Kyle's sending you. Uh, Don't lend it to the wrong friends, though. It could really fuck up your friendship. Take it easy. You heard him, everybody. So you can go over to my website, kyle.surf slash box of goodies to get all three of these products, the mud water, the sex at dawn copy and the CBD sent to your doorstep at a greatly discounted price. Kyle.surf slash box of goodies. That's also Kyle.surf is where you can check out all of my documentaries, my podcasts, give me feedback on the show, anything you want to do. Kyle.surf, not Kyle.surf.com. Don't make that mistake, people. Uh, I'm going to keep this one short. So uh, just fasten your seatbelts. I so appreciate the work that Dr. Peter Atia does and um, the clarity with which he um, speaks and um, the bold work he does on himself as well. So hope you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Peter 
Atiyah. Kyle Tierman here. I'm in Cape Town. I was the only journalist in northern Nigeria. Not an adventure until you get lost in Tijuana. You get caught inside by a giant wave, you feel really alone. I love the adventure of waking up and not knowing what will happen and that being my job. I'm standing at a desert oasis right now. A lot of tourists don't see this part of Bali. Smiles and thumbs up. Thumbs up. I want to start off uh, talking about David Foster Wallace and specifically the section in his talk about asking what you worship. It seemed like that hit a nerve for you and is something that you think about quite a bit. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I I heard that talk for the first time um, probably in 2012 and, you know, intellectually it made sense uh but since that time as i was saying to the guys yesterday i've i probably listened to it uh, once a month and so i i've you know i would need scientific notation now to keep track of how many times i've heard it but <clears throat> one of the biggest transitions in my appreciation for the nuance of that talk was was when that part which is near the very end of the talk um it's when he talks about religion and he talks about worship and um, he actually makes a case that you're probably better off worshiping, you know, sort of a quote unquote imaginary God than you are doing what the rest of us do. Cause I think the way he says it is, look, there's no such thing as atheism. We're all worshiping something. Right. And, um, if it's, if it's power, if it's money, if it's your own body, those, the, the, the worship of those things might even destroy you quicker than the, than the worship of, you know. Uh, a deity because they're unconscious worships yes and because they they all seem to result in sort of the same unsustainable uh, insatiable thirst right whatever you worship he makes that point about if you worship beauty you'll go your whole life feeling ugly and you'll die a thousand deaths before they finally plant you yes as as, as age takes its toll on your body inevitably Um, you will die that thousand deaths before the actual one. Right. And if it's intellect, you'll always feel like a fraud, certainly something that, you know, resonates with me tremendously. Um, If it's material things, you know, you'll never have enough and all these things. Do you think that you consciously knew that you worshipped your intellect? Well, you know, I've had the privilege of worshipping all of these things to some extent throughout (laughs) my life. Um, I think growing up, um, you know, certainly it was all physical to me. It was, you know, worshiping my body. Um, and then, you know, as I got older and, you know, sort of discovered intellect, I think that that has probably become the thing I've, I've worshiped. Um, and certainly I, I've, I've, I'm intimately familiar with the hedonic treadmill of, of worshiping things. I mean, I, I, you know, I love things. Um, Maybe it's to different extents, but I but everything he said resonates. I mean, completely resonates. Yeah, as you said, there's not one superfluous word in a 24 minute speech. That's exactly right. It's um, and 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 also as someone who's trying to write myself, it gives me an even greater appreciation for the greats because obviously he wrote. You know, he's simply reading something he wrote, um, and to 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 look at the structure of that. Um, to look at the arc of that, to look at, as you said, the complete absence of a wasted word or sentence is, um, it's incredible to see that. Yeah. It seems that you do not enjoy 
wasting time and you like getting good at things as quickly as possible. I've seen that even in your, um, in the past few days watching you hunt, the way that you just churn through information and dig out the pieces of gold and then um, really embody that as quickly as possible. Um, how would you describe just the, the biggest takeaways from the last few days of hunting and the, the process that you're going through learning a new skill? Well, I mean, it's, <clears throat> it's, it's really um, enlightening. And I, you know, when I got into archery, which is almost exactly two years ago, it was um, not even without a thought of ever wanting to hunt, not because of any ethical reason, but my thinking of it was it was just going to be like my approach to driving a race car, which is I love driving the car. I have no interest in racing because of the time involved. You know, it's, you know, so if you wanted to do a race, you've got to give up your Thursday to get to the track, practice, Friday is practice, Saturday's qualifying, Sunday's race day. So you get to give up four days to spend a total of two hours in your car. I'd rather spend four days driving eight hours a day, you know, trying to beat lap times with my coach. And so my thought on archery was, well, I just want to learn this skill for the simple, or maybe not so simple, um, goal of trying to get better at something. So trying to be on the road to mastering something, obviously that's a destination you never get to. It's asymptotic, but just the idea of doing this thing. And why would I want to go on a hunt when you got to spend a week to take, you could take five shots in a week when I could take 120 shots every single day in my backyard. And I think for two years, that's sort of how I felt. And, um, but then the closer I got to other people in the sport, um, and more importantly, I think the closer I got to thinking about food, the more I realized, you know, I don't know that I feel right continuing to eat food without knowing I can take a life ethically um, and harvest that food. And I think also with my kids getting older, certainly my daughter, who I can have, you know, adult discussions with now, I also realize this is something I want to help influence the way she thinks about food. Right. Was there a person in your life that got you thinking about the ethics of the food that you eat? Or do you remember a specific conversation that made that hit home for you? I don't think there was a specific conversation. But, you know, as you know, uh, there are many people who choose not to eat meat. And there are at least, you know, you can bracket that into sort of three objections. Um, and there are um, two of them, maybe three, all three of them that I can really see some reason in. So especially if it's not sort of from a completely hypocritical point of view, there are lots of people who sort of, you know, say I'm opposed to meat because of the ethical treatment of animals, but you know, outside of what they're eating, they everything cat, they're, yeah, they yeah they cat food or something like yeah, that. Yeah. yeah. They're, you know, they're covered in leather head to toe. And, you know, so, so if you put aside the hypocrisy, when you really talk to people who say, look, I'm, I'm just ethically opposed to the treatment of, of animals and in captivity and, you know, I love meat, but I'm just not completely. So I think having discussions with people like that has, has opened my eyes a little bit to, to really examine how we have created the default food environment we live in. The default food environment being this environment where you don't have to think about what you eat. It's just, it's, it's on, you know, I don't want to say on steroids because that becomes a negative connotation. So, so unemotionally, it's just, we eat in a way where we don't have to think about it ever. And that's because there's a system that is optimizing for a problem, which is how do you scale food, right? So how do you do it at huge scale? 
how do you do it economically, both for the producer and the consumer? How do you make it transportable so you have sort of what we would call midstream logistics that make it very easy to go from producer to consumer? How do you make it a portable by the user? That turns out to be a defining feature of processed foods is their portability. You don't have to eat them immediately. And then how do you make it taste good? And so if you optimize that problem, you end up with the standard American diet, of which meat is an important part of that. And I have become very critical of that standard American diet. And it's very easy to be just critical of the obvious parts of that, which are the things that come in boxes. You know, it's very, it's very easy to acknowledge that crackers and cereal and potato chips and all that stuff is crap. But it, I guess it sort of occurred to me, well, wait a minute, I need to be, I need to scrutinize just as much the protein in this, in this diet and how different is this from what might be optimal or what I evolved to consume. Right. So, so yeah, it wasn't really a discussion, but more of a general process and thinking. One thing I've noticed about you over the past few days is that you will look at a problem and you'll look at the, the principles, the incentives. You, you very naturally take this 10,000-foot look at anything that you're dealing with. Um, and with uh, our, our American diet, right, you just immediately went out. Um, and the and the problem that I see with the standard American diet is that there are a huge amount of externalities that are not taken into account when you optimize for the most amount of people getting the, you know, spending the most amount of money on food so that companies can make the most amount of money. You know, one being that one externality would be the fertilizer that runs into streams, which then results in the dead zone in the Gulf. You know, another would be the suffering of literally billions of animals. Another would be antibiotics in the food so that you can produce more food, but it's not necessarily as healthy. Um, so if you look at a problem like this, where their corporations are within a system to, to make as much amount, as the most amount of money as possible for their shareholders, um, how would you tweak a system like that to allow for the most amount of people to thrive on the most amount of levels? It's such a hard problem. And, um, I used to spend a lot of time reading about this for a totally different reason. This was even before I became interested in nutrition. So this was back when I, the thought of nutrition never once crossed my mind. So this is more than 10 years ago. Um, but I was interested in it purely from the standpoint of an optimization problem. So I became very obsessed with the change in yield of agriculture. So if you look at maize, which is the best example we probably have in North America, um, you everything comes down to yield per acre. What so is maize? Corn. It's, okay. the, it's the, you know, the crop that has become corn. So um, everything comes down to, if you look at Monsanto and you ask them, what is your single most important metric uh, or your single, you know, you give us your five most relevant metrics. I don't for a moment doubt that among the top five would be how many bushels per acre per year can be grown with our seed under optimal conditions. Now, if you go back and look at the last 200 years of agriculture, never mind the last 10,000, just take a look at the last 200. So that means we've already gone from tiacente, which is the precursor of maize. So tiacente is a tiny little flower. It's like a bud with about four kernels on it that basically fell to the ground. And that's what our ancestors were eating 10,000 years ago. Now, 
The problem with that is it has not a single defining feature that makes for a commercially viable product, right? The yield is very low, both on the plant and at the scale of how many of those plants could you grow per acre per year. It's not harvestable because they're always falling to the ground. So, so you know, through selective breeding um, up until about the Second World War, so if you go back to about 1940, we got to the point where corn could be grown. And again, somebody will listen to this and, and, and say, well, he's off by a little bit. And, and I apologize because I haven't literally looked at this in 10 years. So I'm Michael now... Pollan's a fanatic podcast fan of the, you know, the Kyle Tierman show. He listens to everyone. <laughs> so you'll be getting a text message from yeah, him yeah, very yeah. soon. Um, we were at about 20 um, bushels per acre per year in 1940. So you could get 20 bushels of corn per acre per year. And that was just based on the most you know, rudimentary forms of, you know, selection. So you sort of found crops that you liked, and those would be the ones you would replant over and over again. But then the first wave of agriculture, big ag, really came into into, 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 into um, practice then, which was, you know, so, you know cycling the soil, um, nitrogen loading, all of these other things that came in with modern agriculture. And then, of course, the breeding. And, and people confuse this with genetic engineering all the time. So it is very important for people to, because people get so phosphorylated about this term genetic engineering, it's such a loaded term, but they need to understand like most of the advances we've seen in agriculture came outside of GMO. They, they came through this selective breeding, this Mendelian process of selecting for traits that you like and breeding those over and over and over again. And if you look from 1940 to today, you have seen almost a linear monotonic rise in yields. Now, the last time I looked, it was at, I want to say about 140 to 160 bushels per acre per year. And who knows, that was 10 years ago. It wouldn't surprise me if we're getting close to what Monsanto had said at the time would be 200 bushels per acre per year. So, you know, it's not often in a lifetime you can change something by a log order, an order of 10. And yet that's effectively what has happened in, um, in, in a relatively short period of time. And genetic engineering has played a role in part of that, especially through crop resistance. And that's what you were making reference to earlier with the glyphosate. So, um, you know, the Roundup Ready corn basically engineers resistance to glyphosate so that you can use glyphosate ad lib across the crop, kill everything but your desired corn. So um, if people object to GMO, they usually don't even know what they're objecting to. They somehow think that the genetic engineering of the crop has made the crop harmful. That's absolutely patently untrue. There is no, you're not getting any harm from a crop that was genetically engineered. If there is a harm to it, and this is so far outside of my knowledge area that I want to be very careful, I don't suggest that there is or is not. I simply am ignorant. If there is, it would more likely be from the glyphosate, which is the true thing that's being introduced to our food system, because we can now use glyphosate so liberally. So, of course, there's going to be someone listening to this who's going to say, oh, my God, the toxicology on glyphosate is so clearly that it is not harmful. And then there's going to be someone on the other side who says, no, no, glyphosate is killing people. I, I don't know. That, that should be knowable. That's a very testable hypothesis. But that's actually what GMO is all about. So what I think people... It, what, what it's tempting to do is to paint these companies like Monsanto or ADM or Cargill as, you know, and I know nobody thinks this literally, but it, we use so much shorthand that it, we end up making it sound like they're just out to hurt us. They're not out to hurt us. They're out to satisfy 
a demand on the part of the consumer, which is we want lots of food and we want it really cheap, and they're shareholders. They, they're, not in the, they're not in the nonprofit business. They have to make money. Nowhere in their um, sort of mission statement, to my knowledge, is, oh, and by the way, it has to be perfectly environmentally sustainable, and um, it has to be the healthiest thing we can deliver to a person. I mean, they may pay lip service to that, but that's not technically part of the optimization problem. So I've always found it easier to think of these things not through such an emotionally charged lens of they are good or they are bad. It's they are both, you know? I mean, Monsanto has enabled, and I just pick on Monsanto not to be picking on them, but just because it's everyone's heard of Monsanto. Most people don't know that Cargill and ADM and all these other companies are, are comparable. But, you know, they're just, they're no better or worse for us. I mean, this is, <laughs> as I say this, I'm about to realize how many people I'm going to just drive bananas. But like, it's no different than Apple making an iPhone. If it turns out that iPhones are really bad for kids, which they probably are, is Apple to blame any more than we are for demanding them and for giving them to our kids? I'm not sure, right? So um, we have to take some responsibility for the demand we've created for products um, just as much as the people who have made them and rewarded them for doing so in potentially um, non-sustainable or unsustainable ways. And again, I just have to caveat this by saying I'm generally loath to talk about things I know so little about, but this is obviously one of those topics. So, so I think it, at best, you know, you could discount half of what I'm saying. Right. So we had a conversation, The well, back up, um, I agree with you that the GMO issue is very complicated and most people are not hitting the target when they have a problem with it. Um, for example, Hawaii's issue with GMOs is much different than most of the continental United States because virtually every genetically engineered corn seed that is sold in the U.S. at one point or another touched Hawaii because um, this is where they do most of their testing. So the issue that, uh, that a lot of uh, people in Hawaii have is the level of pesticides that they use to test on the crops year-round because Hawaii has three growing seasons mm -hmm. um, and specifically that many of these tested crops are near low-income Hawaiian families who don't have nearly as big of a voice as, say, if uh, a company like Cargill was doing it in Malibu. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and you're absolutely right. I mean, I think that is the area where people should be focusing, right? And, and I sort of alluded to that, which is, and again, maybe I just haven't followed the debate and maybe the point I'm making is no longer relevant, but Certainly 10 years ago, there was so much consternation over the act of genetically engineering a crop is in and of itself unhealthy, when in reality, that's that's missing the point. Like To engineer resistance into this is not somehow creating a new molecule within us that we ingest that's toxic. It is much more likely that we now have carte blanche to use Herculean levels of pesticides. And... Look, the dose makes the poison for everything from oxygen and water to cyanide. Everything is toxic at a high enough dose. And I'm not being facetious when I say oxygen and water are literally toxic at a high enough dose. So to say pesticides can't be toxic is to simply say they are not matter. Right. <laughs> Anything that is matter can be toxic to us. So it's certainly plausible that... Um, that, that pesticides could be toxic or that we could be beyond a threshold for a chronic toxicity. 
it's very unlikely there's an acute toxicity or else you know t typically those things tend to show up pretty quickly but chronic toxicity could be there and to your point if you're basically getting three shots on goal instead of one in a testing region you could amplify that right so i hope this doesn't feel too much like a non sequitur um i don't think it will but you know you look at a a uh, chemical like atrazine, which is banned in much of Europe, but is used here in Hawaii, um, people will point to campaign finance as the reason for that, that now we have a lot of politicians in office who are beholden to their donors, which is a, a, who are uh, make up a very, very small portion of the population. Um, and thus, they're going to make decisions to benefit um, their donors rather than the general public. An example of this would be um, the former head of the EPA, Scott Pruitt, um, received huge donations from Tyson Foods um, to get into office and did everything that he could to make um, groundwater contamination laws more lax. Tyson is the number one contaminator of groundwater um, in the United States. Uh, surprisingly, because of their, their as I said, uh, manure and, and fertilizer practices. Um, so using your same 10,000-foot um, look at this problem that you know, someone like Lawrence Lessig looks at a lot, um, at the relationship between lobbyists, corporations, and, and our government officials, um, how do you see this issue um, and I suppose, you know, what are your thoughts on, on it? I, I mean, it's so hard. And again, it's just, uh, as much as I love not having to talk about the stuff that I always talk about, <laughs> I'm, doing, the, I'm trying to do that. And right I now. appreciate it. The, the advantage of talking about the stuff I normally talk about is I, I have more domain <laughs> right. expertise so I can, I can speak, uh, with, without sounding like an idiot. Um, the topics you're asking me about are, uh, more interesting to me in some way because I don't get to think about them. Um, but the caveat is I don't have a clue what I'm talking about. My intuition is that um, um, ca campaign finance reform is a very non-sexy topic that has an enormous trickle-down effect that is just not that interesting for most people to think about, but has probably shaped more, you know, it, it might be in the top three biggest problems in U.S. politics, with the other two being, and again, this is spoken by someone who's never taken a course in political science, so you can feel free to dismiss everything I'm saying, but my intuition would be that the Electoral College per se and the gerrymandering of, of districts, um, especially for you know the way primaries are run, those three things probably have a much more negative impact on our political system in this country than you know, the, the numbers four through 10, because right. you could come up with a list of 50 things that are wrong with our political system, and you could come up with a list of 50 things that are right with it. But I, I don't know. My what guess is the is issue with gerrymandering? It basically creates a hyper-polarized environment where you make it very difficult for a centrist to um, emerge in their respective parties. Why? Because you, you create districts that identify the most extreme views and you create literally these completely topographically comical maps of regions to just capture the most extreme views on the right or left. And the problem with that is I think deep down, 
um, you know, as I said earlier, I, very little is absolutely right or absolutely wrong. And I think similarly, very little could be absolutely right or absolutely left. I, I think if you try to be intellectually honest, first of all, most people are far more centrist if, if you if left to their own thought. Um, and I, I, I just think most solutions in the world that have come out of political reform tend to be, you know, neither extreme. And yet we're creating a way to amplify an extreme view and minimize technically the majority of people who I, I think are not at the polls. So that, that, that would sort of be one problem. The Electoral College, I don't even want to get into that. It's just so ridiculous that it right. exists and that, you know, you, you, it would, it, the way it shapes the way, you know, politicians have to think about running for office, how they think about raising money, all these other things. And then, of course, ca campaign finance reform. Right. And just the point on gerrymandering is that because of the way districts are set up, um, you can have a, a district that has been set up so that it's, it's very red. And the only way that an elected official can win is by going further right. Correct. So to, so or to left come off or right. left, yep. or, you know, basically just to show that he or she is more extreme That's right. than their opposition. Right. Um, which just creates these comical, um, these comical campaign videos now where yep. it's just showing that I am this, you know, I, who's more woke or who's more, yep. um, yeah, whatever. Um, uh, what was the 2016 election about? We had an interesting conversation about this the first day. I actually thought, and I, I don't, I don't mean maybe maybe revisionist. Uh, maybe, maybe this sounds a bit revisionist to me, but at the time, my personal view was the 2000 election really came down to how a person felt the Supreme Court should be shaped in the next um, eight years, because I think anytime you're voting for someone to be president, you have to take the view that the incumbent will always have an advantage. So it's potentially an eight-year cycle that you're voting for, even though you get a possible correction at the four-year mark. And so, um, again, I don't think it's like any big, I don't think it's some outrageous statement to say that neither of those candidates were especially popular um, or necessarily even potentially likable. Um, I've never met either of them. So let's assume that in behind closed doors, both of them might have slightly different personas. Um, I thought Hillary Clinton seemed much more qualified than Donald Trump. But in the end, they both had flaws. But... Um, I thought that really what that vote came down to was was how the political uh, was how the legal system was going to be shaped by the Supreme Court, given that you had a vacant seat to be filled. Surprisingly, Ruth Bader Ginsburg did not um, step down and resign under Obama's tenure right after 2012, which, in hindsight, would have been the logical thing to have done. Why? Well, because she's a liberal justice and. The moment it became clear Obama had another term, given her age, it seems that the reasonable thing to have done, if she was interested in preserving the architecture, the political architecture um, of the court, would have been to have herself replaced by someone who shared her views. I mean, that's sort of the beauty of the court is it's, you know, it tries to balance these views. Um, but by not doing so, and then potentially asking the question, will she be able to serve in her capacity for the next eight years, when you immediately are going to fill Scalia's spot. And then that wasn't even anticipating Kennedy, who is the swing guy, being replaced by Kavanaugh, who's going to be very far to the right. So what you potentially have, 
and again, it, it's, it's easy to say this in hindsight, although I think this was actually pretty clear at the time, was you potentially shape the Supreme Court for three decades to come, given the trend that we'll see, which is presidents will appoint young justices very far to the left or right, depending on their political bent. So, you know, if Donald Trump would get to appoint three potential extreme right justices, um, one of them replacing an extreme right, so in Scalia, one of them replacing a centrist in Kennedy, and one of them replacing a left justice, just think about the implication of that if you find yourself to be left of center socially, which is where I think a lot of the Supreme Court plays. So again, many people I know, and maybe this just speaks to the circle I live in in my own little silly bubble, are, are generally quite fiscally conservative, but quite socially liberal, and not to either extreme, but you know, people who sort of believe in a smaller government, um, but you know, favor the rights of women to choose whether they're going to have an abortion or not. Um, would like to see a little less campaign finance influence. Um, would you know? Would like to see you know the decriminalization um, of something like marijuana. You know all these other all these other things that you know people in our world tend to generally feel, but those things become harder and harder if you have a court that is very polarized to the right. Because those things are the issues that the courts will decide on. Yeah, these things tend to make their way up to the court. I mean, I I I, I do think that there are other ways around this. I think in the end, many people think that ultimately states should decide a lot of these things. Um, I think that actually does make sense. I, I, I think the government would work a little bit better if it was more decentralized and states had responsibility. And then you could choose like, you know, these are my values. I'm going to live in California. These are my values. I'm going to live in Kentucky. And, and great. Why do you think that campaign finance is more of a right of center issue? It's a very good question. And it might not be right. It might simply be an, a small N problem where... Um, cause look, nobody's going to say Hillary Clinton wasn't also heavily financed by, you know, people who, you know, had strong views that they wanted her to, to go after. Right. You know, if she would have won, she would have done everything she could to allow the big banks to get passes every chance that they could. Yeah. I, 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 I think it probably just, it's a bit of a game of chicken, I suspect. And in other words and I'm making this up, right? I wouldn't be surprised if there are politicians out there who would love to see campaign finance go away and would love to say, look, I'd like to vote my conscience all the time. I, I don't think politicians are bad people, but when you're in a game that's rigged, you have two choices, play the rigged game or get out of the game. You don't get like, it's sort of like saying, if you were a cyclist in the Tour de France during the heyday of, you know, EPO use, you only had two choices, like do the drug or get out. Because your sponsors aren't going to want to pay to watch you lose get, so badly. Get 18th place yeah, yeah, yeah. clean. Exactly. That, that, that's not interesting. So I, I do think, I, I suspect there are very good people who want to make a difference in public service. And if they could wave a magic wand, I'm sure they would say, look, let's get rid of all of this crap. Let's, let's, let's return this thing back to a level where we get to vote our conscience and we get to do what we think is right because we think it's right and because we think it represents the views of our constituents and not the views of the people who can pay us the most money indirectly. Right. Um, one idea that a lot of people have um, to get 
corporations that have huge externalities. You know, I brought up the example of Purdue Pharma the other day, having this huge externality of their products uh, resulting in the largest opioid epidemic in the history of our country, which are now faced with. Um, it's the number one cause of death among young people in America today. Um, an idea that a lot of people have or, you know, let's say uh, ExxonMobil, externality of oil spills and climate change, um, being that we should just tax corporations more. Um, do you think that that would work? I don't think it would work in and of itself because of basically the fungibility of money. You know, I think that, you know, those things could work if you could be absolutely sure that the quote-unquote syntax or excise tax levied on these organizations could be used exclusively and without reconstitution of funding to address the problems they fix. So even at a theoretical level, you could poke holes in my argument and say, you know, because you're going to, I suspect that if you have a more libertarian bent, you're going to just bristle at the thought of that. Like, why is the government there to show up to say, this guy's the bad guy, we're going to tax him to fix the, the so-and-so like, you know, they, they, you know, you might argue, well, let the market sort that out, right? Let's publicly shame those people and, you know, let them go away as, as you've done, right? Let's publicly shame Purdue Pharma and hopefully they'll file for bankruptcy and that'll take this away. And, and that's which, which they did, which was, as people should know, a complete result of the motherfucker awards. <laughs> right, right. PG&E as well. Two yeah. of our winners. There you go. Um, I don't know. Look, I can argue both sides of these things. I would argue that, you know, without some intervention, um, you're always going to, you know, you, you cut the tail off a snake and you, you know, it grows back. You cut the head off a snake, another snake shows up. So um, I think those are those are tough. But. But in, in principle, it certainly seems reasonable that you should have to pay for some of the damage you're causing. Um, and, you know, let's use smoking as an example because it's such an easy and obvious one, or alcohol for that matter, right? So here we have these two substances, tobacco and alcohol, that are legal. They're regulated, but they're legal. Um, to deny the destructive power of these is simply to deny that the earth is round. So there's going to be at least one person listening to this who thinks the earth is flat, and you can dismiss that comment. But, you know, these things are devastating compounds in terms of their chronic toxicity. Uh, and in the case of alcohol, occasionally it's acute toxicity, but virtually these are both long tail, chronically toxic um, substances, um, especially when not used in moderation. So you you can pay, and, and they both have high taxes on them that in theory should be treating those problems, but then you get into the second order question, which is, do you want to use those resources to treat the end stage problem or to create solutions to reduce demand? Now, it's the latter that strikes me as more interesting. In other words, if you're going to tax cigarettes to have more money set aside to treat patients with lung cancer, okay, that's interesting. Um, but that's very hard because if you go into, you know, 7-Eleven today and buy your pack of cigarettes, and let's just say it's the true cost of that is $2, but you're, we're going to charge you 6 I'm making this up, and we're going to, you know, put that $4 aside to treat lung cancer. Well, I'm not treating your lung cancer because you're not going to get it for 25 more years. And there's, I mean, I'd be delusional to think I'm setting aside that money for that purpose. So, you know, you, you disconnect a little bit the, 
um, the fee that's being paid to treat the problem. A more interesting solution would be what if we could use that money today to create programs to reduce the demand for the product? Um, there's probably no area where this would be more interesting to me than actually, um, you know, harmful drugs. And so, so again, that's, I don't want to go down any more of these rabbit holes that I know nothing about because I've already exposed myself as a complete idiot. But when you think about the war on drugs and what a failed effort that is, how much money has gone into the criminal side of that enterprise versus the, you know, addressing the root cause of addiction. To me, that's probably the greatest injustice in the mismatch between a reasonable objective let's have people do less harm to themselves by using you know pick your favorite heroin cocaine methamphetamine versus the strategy which i would argue is completely flawed and therefore the tactics are a disaster the racial profiling the segregation the criminal justice system which is an abject disaster for anybody who's spent even 12 minutes thinking about it or reading about it. Um, so again, it's, it, it, it wasn't the objective that failed. It was the strategy that failed. Right. So you think that a much more effective strategy would be to hit it at the head of the river, which would be through ad campaigns, which would be to try and influence behavior of people to not get on those drugs in the first place. Yeah. And of course, ad campaign is a tactic, right? And I don't even know how e efficacious that is. Um, I, I, I would even go higher in the, on, the, on the chain, which is why do we drink alcohol to the point of harm? What are we numbing? Because um, let's go back to where we started with David Foster Wallace. We all worship something. So why do we worship something? What, 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 what's the root of all of this stuff? Um, so we all numb ourselves. And my, my wife is so good at reminding me of this because when I get off onto my own little world, she'll, she'll just pause me in my tracks and say, what are you numbing right now? You know, you've been up on the, you know, you've been back on the, you've been on the archery field like four hours a day for the past week. Are you numbing something? And sometimes the answer is yes. I, you know, if I'm forced to think about it, it's I'm upset about this and I just need to pull myself away. Um, sometimes it's, I don't know, let me think about it. Sometimes it turns out to be nothing. But, but I do think most of our behaviors, um, especially when they start to become maladaptive. So is archery maladaptive? No, but maybe spending four hours a day doing that instead of getting more sleep or doing work I should be doing or spending time with my family is maladaptive. And so when a behavior becomes maladaptive, which is not always the case with alcohol, Right? I'm sure some, at some point in this trip, like, look, yesterday I, we had a beer. I mean, we finished a hunt, had a beer. Was there anything maladaptive about that? No. But many people who consume alcohol do so in a very maladaptive manner. And so to me, that becomes the threshold. And of course, it's somewhat subjective and it's, an, it's, a, it's a gradation. It's an analog, not a digital threshold. But that's the question. What are you numbing and why? And so if I were czar, that's where I would want to direct those resources. I want to know why people have to numb themselves, myself included, and go after that problem. Because the other thing is, we all numb ourselves. And it's easy to sit here and pick on the person who's an alcoholic, or the person who's killing themselves by smoking two packs of cigarettes a day. But um, those of us who are workaholics, or those of us who are addicted to exercise, or all of these other quote-unquote socially acceptable addictions are no different. Um, there's a very good book um, called In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts. I believe that's the title. Or, yeah, I think it's In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts. Um, Gabor Mate, uh, M-A-T-T-E, is the author. He's a, um, 
he's a psychiatrist in Vancouver, just outside of Vancouver, and he basically takes care of, you know, some of the the most uh, drug addicted people in North America. And I read his book in, I want to say 2016, um, and it was a real eye-opener for me um, because I knew so much about the drug side of things because of my time in residency and seeing so many of the types of patients that he took care of. I took care of them in a different way. He took care of them actually trying to help with their addiction. I took care of cleaning up some of the problems that come from it. You know, So, for example, in Baltimore, which is the heroin, heroin capital of the United States at the time, so many, you know, so many cases of cellulitis, drug, ab, you know, abscesses in the arm that we would have to clean up. But the part of his book that really gripped me was the realization that we're all addicts, and which is another way of saying none of us are atheists. Um, you know, the gambling addict, the sex addict, the work addict, the money addict, we're all sort of getting the same sort of dopamine surge when we numb this pain. And I, I think that was a very humbling thing to realize because although I'd like to believe I haven't been looking down at the addict, I'm sure I have been subconsciously saying, God, why can't you just get your stuff together, man? Like, why do you stop smoking? Stop drinking so much. But um, so, of course, this gets to a much bigger societal problem, which is, you know, why are so many of us in the developed world spending so much time with maladaptive behaviors. Gabor Mate has a great quote, which is, addiction is not the problem. Addiction is the person's attempt to try and solve the problem. Absolutely. Absolutely. That, that is completely correct, in my opinion. Um, there was a quote that I, uh, I told you the other day that I said reminded me of you, which was the Joseph Campbell quote, um, which is something along the lines of, life is the joyful participation in the sorrows of the world. And I see you in the short time that I've known you and um, making an effort to do that because you live in a world where you could be all day long, you know, driving out on race cars and hanging with rich, powerful people and numbing yourself completely from the sorrows of the world. But I see you again and again make these conscious decisions to visit the prisons, um, ask yourself the questions of what you're, you are numbing within your own psyche, um, and really pushing against, um, pushing against a lot of that behavior that I think causes a lot of, of suffering. Um, Are you conscious of that? Are, or is that something that you've always just gravitated towards? You, t you told me the other day, um, or just yesterday when we were listening to the David Foster Wallace um, speech, fuck the importance of staying humble. That's what it gives me. Yeah, no, I, that does not come naturally to me. What comes naturally to me is grandiosity and arrogance. Um, those are my default states for sure. And everything you've just described is, I mean, you could... I, I could give you a story of, of altruism and I could give you a story of I'm a good human and that's why I make this effort. And I don't think that's true. I think it's pure self-interest. I've simply learned how much happier an existence can be when I can be connected to other people and when I can um, see the world through the eyes of another person and how unhappy I am when I am the center of the universe. So... 
and, and again, it's another, just another great example of how David Foster Wallace hits this nail on the head. It's how socially repulsive it is for us to acknowledge what is our default state, which is pure self-centeredness. We are all the center of our own little tiny worlds and our little tiny skull-sized kingdoms. And it's only by stepping out of that that I have begun to experience what could be described as relational joy, which is, um, you know, that's a whole other tangent. But um, so I think of all those things as self-interest. It's just you, you have a choice. You can be miserable or you can be happy. I've spent most of my life incredibly miserable. And in fact, viewing misery as a feature, um, meaning something you actually wanted and something you needed to keep right next to you to motivate you. And I think I've just realized that's the isolation, the, all of the harmful behaviors that come with it. It's, it's not worth it. I mean, we only, you know, it's so funny. I saw something on Twitter this morning that someone said, um, and I'll misquote this. So basically someone said that I'm, I'm, I'm terribly offended because my friend who is religious and I'm an atheist said to me, he feels sorry for me because I have nothing to live for. And I chimed in on the discussion by saying, what, that, that it's not necessarily about being offensive or not. It's just, it's a sad way to view the world because it implies you're not living for the moment. It implies there's nothing in this moment, in this life that we know about that's relevant. So whether or not there's an afterlife, and I don't believe there is, but I can't prove that any more than a person who thinks there's an afterlife can prove there is one. So let's not debate about the unknown. The only thing that you know is capital T true, to borrow from our friend, is that we're all alive right now. And if I were going to spend all my time thinking about an afterlife and what I have to do for an afterlife and what I have to do to be remembered when I'm gone, oh my God, you miss the whole thing. So in the here and the now, being connected to other people seems to produce less misery than being in isolation. Right. Um, my friend Chris Ryan, who you're going to meet tonight, um, told me once, I, I spent a lot of his, a lot of time down at his spot in Topanga having these kinds of conversations and when I was younger, I was very purpose driven. I had it all written down and my purpose is to you know, help others through you, translating these complicated subjects into something that's more entertaining. And I, you know, I had this list and he looked at me once and he said, sometimes I think that my purpose is just noticing more, hmm. which I really like. I mm -hmm. think it simplifies things quite a bit. Do you think that... You and I don't think I have a purpose. I mean, I right. think that's another part of the grandiosity thing is I used to really think I was put on this earth to do certain things. And I, I mean, th and I, I felt that way through a non-religious lens, but I was like, look, there are certain things that I think I can do better than most other people. And those are my obligations. Those are the things I'm here to do. And I, I think um, I have come to realize more and more with each passing day that I am, as we all are, completely and utterly insignificant. I mean, you, you only have to spend like a few minutes playing the thought experiment of how the world moves in your absence. Um, <laughs> like it literally does not miss a beat. Right. And, and, and sadly, or maybe not sadly, I mean, I, I actually, I would say for good reason, that's true of every person on the planet. Right. There is no one, if you think about like the most powerful people on this planet, the president of the United States, Vladimir Putin, I mean, you, Jeff Bezos, you, you think about the most influential, powerful people. Well, the reality of it is if they ceased to exist, the world wouldn't 
miss one degree on its axial uh, axial rotation. I've had a few sailors on this podcast, and many of them report the same ins- um, insight when they're out in the middle of the ocean. Is this profound feeling of how small they are? You're just on this little craft in the middle of the big blue sea. And I, I think that nature can give that to us many times. It can give us that insight of, of how small we are in the face of something that's just so much bigger than us. Yep. And it's a very honest reflection because if you think that the world is centered around you, that's delusional. That's just untrue. As you said, the world really doesn't miss a beat. Um, now, there will be people who do miss a beat. And this is one of the exercises right. I play with myself and with even my patients right. sometimes, which is pretend you die tomorrow, fast forward one year, list out, usually on one or two hands, the number of people who a year from today will likely think of you. So, so when I play that game, I come up with a very small list of people that are my kids, my wife, and... I mean, probably my family, like my siblings and stuff like that. I don't think there's anybody else on that list if I'm going to be brutally honest, right? right? Like I'm not even sure I have a close enough friend and I feel like I'm very blessed and have like incredibly close intimate friendships. But the reality is like, I don't don't think Tim Ferriss a year after I die is going to necessarily remember me. I mean, he might only if it's the anniversary of the death. I'm just using Tim as an example. But, but you know, when you play that game, it also helps reprioritize you a little bit, which is, wait a minute, if there's like only five people on the planet who a year after I die or five years after I die will remember me or maybe a better way to think of it, whose life will be changed in some way because of my loss, my, my death, how much time am I spending on those relationships? Right. Yeah. It makes you want to put your phone away during dinner a little bit more often. Yeah. Right. If you're focused on your Instagram chances are none of those people are going to care a year from now. Conversely, and you brought up Tim Ferriss, I think that for people who are dealing with depression and think of themselves as insignificant, um, Tim brought up the point that a good antidote for um, people who are contemplating suicide is to think about just how sad it will make those people who do care about you when you're gone. Because it, you won't have to deal with it anymore, mm-hmm. but they will be left with that hurt. Um, do you think still that you know you, you brought up the uh, this thought of that you, you know you're good at certain things, you have an obligation to use those skills um, to fulfill your purpose? That was a past mindset that you had. Do you think that given um, the amount of luck? that there is, if you believe in luck, that you were born into this body, you were born with this mind, you have these skills. Do you think that you have an obligation to use your skills on behalf of helping others? Boy, it's such a tough question because to the first part of that, I completely feel lucky in a way that I think goes beyond the lip service that I would have expressed that five years ago. So I I think... I'd like to think I'm, I've always had enough of an understanding of probability theory to appreciate the stochastic nature of our existence, right? Like, I mean, how, I I don't even want to get into it. It's such an interesting discussion of just like the randomness with which we exist. But more recently, I've come to realize 
other elements of luck that I can't take any credit for. For example, I've always had a strong work ethic, right? Like, so as I sort of came out of the womb, always having the ability to concentrate and to work really hard and to do whatever I say I'm going to do. If I, you know, if I was a kid and I wanted to do something, I just, I could sit down and make it happen. And I, what I don't think I appreciated until I really started to spend more time thinking a little bit about the philosophy of free will and choice is that I don't think I can take an ounce of credit for that either. You know, I'd like to say, well, at least on one level, I have the, you know, um, you know, the fortitude to do something. No, I mean, that, none of that may be true, right? So, it, 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 one, it gives you, again, coming back to this previous topic, it gives you a greater empathy for people who don't share that, right? You know, you see these people, and I know these people, we all know these people who, they just can't get out of their own way sometimes. And it's a, it's a very hard thing to think about because on the one hand, you don't want to suggest don't strive to get better, don't strive to fix the things that are causing you distress. But at the other hand, it gives you a, a bit of a humility about it. Now, to your second part of that question, I don't know. I struggle with that, right? Do I have an obligation to do anything? And, and I guess it comes back to what we talked about earlier. I, I really think the only thing that matters is that I set up my kids because I've made a decision that I've talked to many people and who I respect greatly who have made the opposite decision, which is they've lost confidence in the world and they're not going to bring kids into this world. Um, and I have great respect for that because that to me is, you know, having kids is incredible, but you could also, you could, you could make an argument that to have kids without at least thinking through that problem is a bit selfish because probabilistically my kids are going to be here long after I'm gone. So I have to one, either have faith that the world they're going to inherit is going to be a place I would want to be in and I would be happy that they're in and, or that I spend time preparing them to adapt to whatever that looks like. And I think that has to be a very conscious and deliberate decision. I don't know if I'm doing a good enough job. But I also know that that is, that is the single highest priority for me. And that's probably until I feel like I'm doing all the right things there, which I don't yet feel, I'm not sure anything else matters. Right. Everything else is probably a means to an end. You told me the other day, um, we were having a conversation um, about podcasting, and I asked you why you started your podcast. And you said, I was having these really interesting conversations with these um, people. And I thought, eh, this could probably help a lot of people if they heard the conversation too. Um, and more recently, I've been thinking about this concept of asking the question, what do you have access to that can help other people, um, fairly easily. And for you, you have huge access to interesting people and fairly easily you can share that knowledge with people who aren't your kids, you know, with the greater world, um, which is an altruistic move in a way. I suppose. Yeah. I mean, um, I could also argue that everything I do could could on some lens, even if even if not one single person were to ever listen to it, I would love knowing that I have a library for my kids one day. Um, I would love to have an archive of all the things my dad was thinking when he was my age. Yeah, in an unedited form and voice too. It's such a warm, yeah. close form of media. Um, I find that I'm very close with people whose podcasts I listen to, many of whom I've never met in person. Yeah. So, um, 
I do love to teach. That's just something that's always for, for whatever reason, like I, I taught calculus for many years, um, I, I, for three years, I guess, not that many, but, but I, I got unbelievable joy from that. Like that was, especially the level that I taught it. So I taught it in, in at the college level, but I didn't teach to the math majors. So I was on the math major track. So we took, uh, you know, the numbered courses, like it was 122, 23, 24, 20 were the math classes. So those were relatively small classes for people who were um, very likely going to do a PhD in mathematics. But then there were all the other numbered courses, like the, the 21s and the 22s and the 23s, which were for people going into economics, science, you know, biology, et cetera, you know, biology, chemistry, whatever, where you didn't have to spend as much time on the theoretical stuff. Like for our math classes, we were mostly going through very theoretical stuff. It was proofs. It was very abstract. If you're someone who's going to take one calculus class or two calculus classes in college to go on and do chemistry, you don't need a single proof at this point. Like if you're going to be, you know, you, you want to make sure people understand what a differential equation is and how to set it up and how to solve it. Um, so that was, that was the group I taught to. So you didn't have the same degree of love for mathematics that I had or that my classmates had. And I think I realized early because I had such great teachers that there was a way to teach calculus that made it the most fun thing in the world. Cause it is beautiful. Like calculus is ev like, I'm looking out the window and it's very easy to look at everything I see right now and describe it in terms of calculus. Um, How so? Well, calculus is the rate of change of movement, right? It's the study of movement. And so, you know, today we were talking about arrows and I was talking about, you know, computational fluid dynamics and how you would model how much should you have four veins versus three veins? Should you spiral them? Where's the center of mass relative? I mean, it's, all of that stuff we have because of calculus. So everything we're doing, whether we're thinking about it or not, it's all about this, this movement. And so to, to be able to, to take that and explain to somebody why they should care about that over the course of a year, you know, at the beginning of the, this semester when everybody, because it was a one-year class that we taught. I mean, at the beginning of that semester, so many people were just like, just they just wanted to survive the class. And by the end... It's not like any of them decided they were going to change their major and go into math, but I want to believe that they just had a slightly greater appreciation for this beautiful, you know, process. Yeah, for the context. Yeah, I, that was a major shift in my life when I started um, being able to learn about um, the world through subjects that I was interested in. For example, I had no interest in math growing up, and then there was a shift in my junior year. I told you I read the book, um, The Art of Learning, mm -hmm. and changed schools, and then all of a sudden had a chance to learn outside and, and started making these short-form documentaries about uh, coastal issues um, around the world, and I figured that I had to learn how to m get money to go to these places and bring a cameraman. And... Then I had to learn how to write a grant. And all of a sudden, I had a much greater appreciation for math because I needed to learn how to budget. Mm -hmm. um, I had a much greater appreciation, you know, even for, for politics. I would go to, I remember on one of the earlier trips I did, I went to Chile. And my mom got me a book about Augusto Pinochet because mm -hmm. um, she said, hey, you're traveling to these places around the world. You represent something. 
know that. So learn about the histories of these places. And it gave me such a more vivid appreciation for where I was. It was almost like, um, uh, you know, having a taste of wine and having the psalm be right there mm-hmm. and tell you all of the the berries and textures. It just allows you to see life um, in a much deeper way. And that's fun. I mean, nothing else. It's just a really fun way to move through life, asking those kinds of questions. Yeah, that's why, I mean, I just, I, I sort of gravitated to Richard Feynman. Um, is, is, once I sort of became intellectually curious in life uh, with respect to science um you know Feynman just became instantaneously one of my favorite characters in that space because of his endless curiosity which is effectively one of the most important things in life I mean you you could argue that when a person loses their curiosity um they begin to lose the focus on the world outside of themselves Um, And that's in many ways what curiosity is. It's a lens to view the outside world. And for some people, that curiosity is geared towards the natural world, which is where Feynman's curiosity stemmed from, right? I mean, he was a physicist, but you could hear him speak, you know, very eloquently about biology and chemistry and things for which he was not a Nobel laureate. But it all stemmed from this curiosity about the, the laws of nature. You could be equally curious about, you know, the laws of the human mind. Um, and, and, and so once that goes away, I, I, th- I think it's sad. I think when the, when the flame of curiosity is extinguished, uh, you, could, you could make a case that that's, that's part of the, 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 the downward slope. It's very inhuman to, for the flame of curiosity to go out. If you look at the way that we have developed, the way that we have innovated, in a lot of ways stems from a curious thought and a question being asked that then led to the city or the, but the I wonder, is that, is that, I'm, I'm trying to think, is that, I'm, I, I, I wonder how evolution has handled curiosity because there are probably certain types of curiosity that, that evolution has had a heavy hand in guiding any curiosity that would have dealt with reproductive fitness, for example, um, but I suspect that s- some of the more advanced forms of curiosity are just a luxury of the world we live in today, where we don't have to spend time worrying about reproductive fitness or any of the other pressures around evolution. I mean, I've never thought of this. I have to right. think about it. More. Well, I wonder if curiosity goes up as more needs are met on Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Yeah. Uh, it, that, that's my initial thought is, is, you know, you've got to be three rungs up that ladder before you have the the ability to do it. But, but I don't know, I'd almost have to, you know, like I'm curious as to whether folks who are living in, um, South Sudan getting, you know, bombed by their government. Um, if they ha- I wonder how curious they are. Uh, I wonder how much of that luxury they have. Hmm. Well, I find that when I'm more afraid, when I, um, am living in more of a scarcity mindset, I'm less curious and I'm more wrapped up in some kind of narrative happening in my head that is very certain of the way things are very certain of how, um, that guy's an asshole and I'm right, you know, or I'm stupid. Uh, I don't have the capability of, of being here in this conversation or, you know, that's, there's a lot of certainty, which is 
in some ways the opposite of curiosity. Yeah. And, and we were, I think we were talking about this the other day is how, um, scarcity and fear are the, um, the antidotes or the negative, uh, counterbalances to empathy. Right. Um, was it your idea to visit the prison? No. So, um, I got to know this woman by the name of Catherine Hoke. Um, sort of funny. Uh, many people that I know, four people I know, in fact, had told me about Kat over, you know, the course of a couple of years. And it was just one of those things where it's like, I, you know, I just had so much on my plate. I never really fully connected with her. And then one night I was in New York and I was having a uh, dinner with a friend and she became like the fifth person to tell me about Kat. And I was like, you know, Jesus, this is, uh, this is a sign. This is an omen, right? We were talking about the alchemist the other day. Um, this is, this is an omen. I, um, I really got to get to know her. So I said, look, while we're sitting here right now at dinner, email her, email me and make us meet. Like we're going to meet. So it was really through getting to know Kat that I became very interested in her work in prisons. And, um, and that's, that's what sort of led to, to me wanting to go. Um, and what was the most formative experience there that you think about most often? Uh, there's so many, God, to pick one. Um, the obvious one is, is the, um, the great divide between the haves and the have nots. You know, the prison is, the prison system in the United States does not um, systematically go out and in an unbiased manner pull and extract from society the people who are in most need of reform and or most society most needs protection from. And if you stop to think about it, those are the only two roles a prison sh should serve in our society. One, it should be there to protect the citizens from people who cannot be reformed. And it should be there to reform people who need a punishment, who will eventually get out. That's it. There's nothing else a prison should be doing. And if you spend any time in prison, and if you spend time reading about prison um, and talking to the people in the system, they will all acknowledge that that is simply not the case. We're pretty good at the former. We're pretty good at taking somebody who's never going to go back into civilization and keeping them there. We're, you know, in other words, we've figured out the mechanics of how to prevent people from escaping from prison. Big walls. Sure, yeah, you could run through all that stuff. But given that, I don't know what the number is, but let's just say it's 95 to 99% of people who enter prison will exit prison, we fail miserably on the second. And, you know, we were talking about this a couple of days ago, and somebody said, um you know, does, does Kat's team work with people who are sexual offenders? And the answer is yes. And, and Kat took a lot of grief for that. There were a lot of donors that pulled out when she said, we're going to work with sexual offenders. What they want to work with is, is people who are committed to changing, people who are remorseful, people who, who, who understand the mistakes they've made and want to improve. And her point, which is, you know, just a very logical point is, look, this person who's a sexual offender is going to be out again one day. You have a choice. Do you want this person to be a reformed sex offender or a sex offender? And when viewed through that lens, like even if you know they're not going to be in your backyard because you have the privilege to not be living in the same neighborhood as a sex offender, 
if you have even a modicum of concern for your fellow citizens, you, you have to want everyone to be reformed. So, um, so, so the first observation then is that we are not, we are not in an unbiased systematic fashion correctly doing this job, meaning there is tremendous bias as to who's in prison. Um, and that's, <coughs> you know, people, um, have very eloquently, um, walked through the statistics on the, you know, the, 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 the sort of the racial and economic biasing that goes into who's in prison. And then there's the sense of how little is being done to, to help people rehabilitate, including the subset of people who want to be rehabilitated. There are many people in prison who have tremendous shame for what they've done and a desire to say, if I could go back in time and do it again, I would do it different. And if you think about that, if someone has healthy and unhealthy shame for what they've done, and, and those two tend to go hand in hand, um, and they wish they could do it all over again, I mean, that should be your population to say, we're going to help these people get better. Um, so that, that, that's certainly one. And then, and then the other one is just the obvious, which is it comes back to your point of luck. You know, one of the games we played, games is probably the wrong word, one of the activities we did in prison was this... Um, it was this thing called step to the line where you know, you have the volunteers are on one side and the inmates are on the other. And it's, it's all about how this is moderated. But in our case, cat was moderating this. And the purpose of this exercise is to demonstrate the vast differences between people on the inside and people on the outside and how many of those differences are outside of anyone's control. So, you know, step to the line. If you had a household that had uh, two parents in it, well, I mean, that's a stark contrast between people who are incarcerated and people who are not. Step to the line, if you grew up in a home where there were more than five books. So I can't take any credit for the fact that I grew up in a home with more than five books any more than you can take credit for the color of your parents' eyes. Um, so these, these activities leave you realizing, again, just a sense of empathy for these people the, 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 meaning the incarcerated people, and also a, a little bit less of a high horse for you to sit on and think, well, you know, because sometimes I, <laughs> in my lowest moments, would rationalize my existence by saying, well, at least I'm not out there breaking the law. <laughs> right. Like as though that's somehow, you know, some great moral achievement. Right. It seems that um, people in society hold a special kind of hatred for sexual offenders. Um, when we think of disposable people, sexual offenders tend to be at the top of the list for most people. You know, if you just were to ask them walking down the street, um, and this idea of disposable people, um, seems to be something that we need to fight against and empathy, uh, needs to be something that we really need to turn the dial up in as many ways as possible, whether that's um, therapy, MDMA, visits towards to prison systems. Why do you think we hold sexual offenders in such a different category? Because I never gave that a thought, except that, yeah, fuck those people, throw them in, a, in the um, cell and throw, the, throw away the key. Um, until there was a point made, and I think it was Sam Harris who made this point, um, and it was maybe not even directed to, to sexual offenders. I believe it was it was uh, he made the point on your podcast about Saddam Hussein. He said 
dial him back to age nine. What is he like? Um, and for many sexual offenders, they were molested themselves, so, which I think is a, a good lens to look at this through because it does give you more empathy. But what is your perspective on why we hold those people in such a different category? I suspect it's because we look at their victims as the most helpless um, with respect to children being abused. Um, you know, I, I, again, I don't really know the hierarchy, but I suspect that the pedophile is held in the lowest regard, followed by the rapist, et cetera, et cetera. Versus, you know, uh, you know, the, 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 the person who's killed the police officer, right, might be at the top of the hierarchy or the armed robber, whatever. Um, so I suspect it stems from just, you know, the one who has victimized the most helpless person is the one that we, we find the most repulsive. Um, and you're right. I believe that if you could sit down with every sex offender in prison, every one of them has been a victim of trauma. I don't know what fraction of those would be sexual trauma, but I suspect it would be very high. And if not sexual trauma, some other trauma. You know, trauma is sort of broken into five buckets. Um, we think of abuse, which can be sexual abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse, and spiritual abuse. We think of abandonment, neglect, um, enmeshment, and the actual witnessing of tragic and traumatic events can itself be traumatic. So I don't think you could walk through a prison and talk to somebody who hasn't experienced that. Similarly, I don't think you could walk through the outside world and not meet someone who hasn't experienced that. And so the question becomes, why are you sitting out here not in prison while someone who has experienced maybe similar trauma is inside prison? And that really comes back to this lens of luck, predisposition, circumstance, all of these other things. So none of this is to defend these actions or to say that I don't find it unbearable and to be clear you know if 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 my child was you know preyed upon by a sexual predator i'm not for a second suggesting i could sit here in a you know sage sanguine voice and wax philosophically about this that's simply not the case but that's not how that's as a society that's probably not the way we want that's not the lens we want to bring to this right we don't want to come at this from our worst reaction in our worst moment it's probably important to think about these things more broadly. Now, I still think you could completely overhaul the prison system without even having to address that issue. The far bigger one is the role that um, the U.S. drug war has played on the prison system. So if you if you were going to say, look, pick one problem in, in prison reform to go after in terms of a root cause, I, I think it would still come down to to, to drug use. Which, again, comes back to Gabor Mate's point, which is, why are we not putting resources into understanding the pain that is the root cause of this economic engine that is producing a drug trade? And why are we using criminal tools to fight an emotional problem? So if you were the drug czar and you had a big budget to deal with this problem... Where would you allocate your resources? What would you actually do? I mean, I'd have to give much more thought to that. Um, 
so I can't, I don't think I can answer that question tactically, but I would say strategically, I do not think you can. So, so if you believe that much drug use stems from addiction, I would understand, I would want to say, how can you treat addiction? And I think there are two things that are sorely missing from mainstream treatment of addiction. And I actually had an exchange with somebody over email who's very interested in funding addiction research. And we were going back and forth and this person was explaining the lens through which they fund. And I was just feeling especially frisky and I just sort of pushed back and said, you know, with all due respect, um, I think you're squandering your resources because if you, if you're not to say that those things that you're funding aren't interesting, but you're missing, I, what I believe would be the two things that have to be part of any addiction based program. The first is, um, going after the root cause, which is trauma based experiential therapy. You, you have to go back to a person's childhood in an experiential way and understand and uncover what the trauma is and understand how that trauma has led to, again, we talked about the five roots of trauma, and then you have these four branches of which addiction is one. Addiction is one of these four branches of trauma. Does that mean every person who's an addict has been traumatized? No. Does it mean every person who's traumatized will be an addict? No. But the overlap of that Venn diagram is non-trivial. So to ignore that without doing this type of trauma-based therapy is to me crazy. And then of course the second is something we've spent a lot of time talking about this week, which is the use of psychedelic agents to facilitate the therapy and the healing from that process. So, um, again, I, I suspect strategically if I were the drug czar, that's where I'd want to put so many of my resources would be trying to understand and heal trauma. Right. And to know that it can happen, too, I think that that's a, a, just a major point to sharpen and hammer home for people is that traumas can be healed. Absolutely. I think that um, a lot of people just don't believe that. You know, they have some kind of story that they're just too fucked up to ever get over this. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's where the psychedelics really help. I mean, I think... The psychedelics can get you out of, they can override that system that can tell that story. And you have to be able to override that temporarily to, to sort of get in the crack. Right. You said that for most of your life, you, um, your kind of default mode was misery and you saw it as a feature. Um, how did that shift and what's the conversation for yourself now, because I can tell even in the past few days of, of seeing you hunt, you're still hard on yourself. You see, I mean, you've shot a, a pig and a, a ram and both cases you said, oh, it was the luckiest shot in the history of the world. And it wasn't as satisfying as it would have been if it was a perfect shot. And like you, you still definitely have that um, desire to be the best. But how has the conversation shifted for you um well it's it's all through the lens of kids huh so so for me as my especially my daughter who's 10 and my son who's you know going to be five so so if you call him four and a half um i'm now realizing the impact my interaction with them is having on them in other words I'm noticing something that is obvious, but has been 
absent from my perspective forever, which is you will treat others the way you treat yourself. What that means is I've been incredibly hard on myself my entire life, and I have been incredibly hard on everyone around me my entire life. So anybody who's listening to this who has ever worked for me is grinning like a Cheshire cat right (laughs) now saying, yeah, that guy is a relentless prick. I mean, and he's, it's not personal, right? Like I'd like to believe that all the people I have just berated and beat the shit out of, you know, in my life to be better, didn't think it was because I was a malicious asshole, but it was because I was such a perfectionist and I was pushing them to do things that they couldn't do. But I also think, and I don't say this to make an excuse, I think I got away with it much more than I should have because I think deep down people knew I was pushing myself twice as hard as I was pushing them. So I could be a completely relentless, horrible human, but they could see directly I was harder on myself and they sort of viewed themselves as probably the collateral damage of the way I treated myself. So if you were to make a mistake hunting pre-mindfulness, what did that conversation sound like as opposed to the conversation you're having now? Oh, I think the, it would have been much more, it would have been very nasty. I mean, it would be, it would be awful. It's, 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 it's harsh language. It's, I mean, it, it, even today, because I've, I've pulled back enough from this, it's hard to believe the narrative, what that would have sounded like. Like, and the first time I realized how harsh I was being on someone in an effort to quote unquote, make them better was with my daughter. Because that's the, in other words, I'd been a complete dick to everybody in my life, but for some reason I didn't have a mirror until I saw it in my daughter. So, so it's, it's awful to say that, that I could spend my whole life being so hard on my siblings, hard on my parents, hard on people who worked for me, hard on my wife, hard on everyone that entered my orbit. And I could never see the reflection. And it's only with my daughter. And maybe that is just one of the beautiful things about having a child is you finally see the reflection of what you've done. I love the mirror analogy because everything that we've talked about so far um, in one way or another is about setting up these mirrors, right? If you go, uh, if you're playing the game Step to the Line in the prison, that's just a mirror between Mm -hmm. you and this other person. Um, If you're looking at your, through your daughter's eyes, you said, Yesterday, yesterday that a lot of people's traumas come through when their kids become the age that they were at the time of trauma because all of a sudden there's this mirror. Yeah. Um, and you made a, 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 a you had a funny thought experiment that you brought up the other day about um, setting up mandatory mirrors in society, like um, you know everyone should have to visit a prison. Um, everyone who makes a, a nasty comment on Twitter should have to say it in person to the person that they made the nasty comment to, um, to feel that more. And yeah, I think that that's one of the most important things that we could be doing to turn this empathy dial up and probably solve a lot of problems along the way. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, we've, we've spoken quite a bit this week about MDMA and, I, it's such a hyperbolic statement I'm about to make, but that's just sort of my, my nature is to do that sort of just to be provocative. 
I'm not convinced that there is a more relevant synthetic molecule created in the history of our species than that one. And its potential to completely crack the veneer of, you know, the fear, the self-loathing, all of the things that are anti-empathetic. My man, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with me. Dude, this is, uh, this is incredible to be sitting up here in the middle of nowhere in this cabin and, uh, and to, to be able to talk about this stuff and uh, in the context of all the other stuff we're doing today. It's great. Yeah. Thank you so much, Kyle. Sweet. Um, where can people get in touch with you? Um, well, I have a podcast that uh, comes out weekly. It's called The Drive and uh, comes out every Monday. Ex- likes to explore topics very similar to this. Um, Luckily, I don't have to be doing all the talking, so I, I get to do what you're doing, which is ask the questions, which I actually enjoy a lot more. Um, and on my on my site, PeterAtiyahMD.com is where all this information that you know I'm interested in with respect to human longevity uh, can be found. Nice. And finally, is there a, a um, quote from either the David Foster Wallace speech or or something? Let's let's round it out from the David Foster Wallace speech. What do you want to leave people with? It's the way in which he explains that nothing he's saying should be construed as moral advice. And if you want to choose to live in a world where everything is about you and your point of view, that's fine. Just acknowledge that it's the default and it requires no effort and no choice. All this stuff that we're talking about, it's painful, but it's a choice. And you you said it earlier, I mean... Nobody has to be this way forever. You you can make a decision to try to change it. And I, I think he just does such an eloquent job describing that. I hope you can link to it in the show notes and everybody can I, I think I think everybody should listen to This Is Water once a month. That's my that's one of my prescriptions. I'll put it right below the description. Awesome. Peter Atia, thank you so much. Thanks, brother. That's our show. I'm gonna play you out the song called Flashing Lights by Sourgrass. This is a band from my hometown of Santa Cruz, and I used to live with their lead singer. So if you like their tunes, click the link below this episode, and you can listen to more. If you are a musician and you want your music played at the end of this show, you can email it to info at kyle.surf. That's also where you can give feedback on the podcast, recommendations for new guests. It's also where you can send those groovy little voice memos that I love getting from you. Where are you? Right now. Bust out your phone, click the voice memos app, record about a minute of audio, um, something you're excited about, some project you're involved with, um, and I'll play it at the beginning of this podcast. I know I didn't do it on this one, but... I do for many. If you like this show and you want to listen to more, I recommend going back to episode 154 with sex educator Amy Baldwin. Here's a quick clip from that conversation. Or, but if you also, if you want to slow the energy down or be more connected to your partner or your, your own body, I think slower, deeper breaths. And in sexuality, we usually teach you to breathe in through the nose and out through the mouth. Or the once again that was episode 154 with amy baldwin thank you everyone who gives this podcast ratings on itunes it takes about 30 seconds and does a huge amount to boost the visibility thank you to everyone who shares it with friends and thank you thank you to people who reach out um to my guests on instagram so peter's on instagram shoot him a quick note hey heard you on kyle's podcast it helps 
get me these kinds of guests more and thus more good podcasts for you. So all that aside, get outside, have a beautiful day, get in the water if you have a chance, whatever body of water you are closest to, and give someone a high five. The world needs more of it. Hope you enjoy this song by Sourgrass called Flashing Lights. Ciao.